Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show, Pacifica host Garland Nixon on people in this country thinking they live in a luxury liner, but they don't. They live in a pirate ship. Garland and yes, uh, who has it said that the rumors of my demise are greatly uh, uh, exaggerated? I was uh, so people have asked me, "Well, Garland, when are you leaving?" You said you were leaving. So let me tell you, I was doing, I, and you know, I like to be straight out open. So I was doing a show here, and I was doing a show on KPFK, and I, it just was too much. I was doing, and you know, I do other radio shows. I was getting overwhelmed, and I thought, you know, I'm getting tired. It may be time for me to throw in the towel and just just drop all this foolishness, right? And so when I stopped doing the show in KPFK, and then at that point I realized, you know what? If I just do the PFW show and kind of cut back on some of this stuff, maybe I'll chill out for a while and enjoy it because I really enjoy doing this show. So I decided when I, just, when I you know, eased up on the KPFK show, I decided, you know what, and, and a couple other things I was doing, I backed off to give myself some more time and decided to stick around here. So I... Uh, uh, I'll be around a while. I have no plans of leaving soon. I'm going to stick around a while. So that's, I don't know, good news for some and bad news for others. But whatever the case may be, so that's it. Uh, At any rate, so let's get to talking. Um, A couple of things I want to touch base on, and that is just some thoughts that was going through my mind, you know, with the, uh, the, what's happening in Gaza right now, the genocide in Gaza, right? And when I thought to myself, I'll start here. Um... This is waking some people up, but I'd like to say this, you know, for people who listen to my show for a long, long time know that I've been screaming like a maniac and saying, for instance, you know, what have I been saying? I've been saying people in this country think they live in a luxury liner, but they don't. They live in a pirate ship that the United States goes around the world killing people, marauding, stealing people's resources, Africa, Latin America. You know, I'm hard on the U.S. empire. And, you know, there were people giving me a hard time about it. But, you know, I can back it up. I can support it. Right. And I was saying they're violent. And look what our how our country started and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, hey. And, of course, the other thing I said is don't you know, I'm independent. Don't tell me about the Democrats or the Republicans. You are arbitrarily um, dividing up a genocidal, a, a, a criminal enterprise. That's the way I see it. You know, you can go to a criminal enterprise. You can go to the mafia, right? And you can say, well, there's this group, a clique of guys in the mafia, and that clique of guys in the mafia, right? So it's a group that works for this guy and a group that works for that guy in a particular mafia. But they're all mafia figures. And you can decide one group is better than the other, but they all rub people out and do all kinds of terrible criminal things. That's how they make a living, right? That's my view when people say, oh, the Republicans or oh, the Democrats or whatever, right? I was a Democrat for most of my life. And when the whole Bernie Sanders things went down, it, a lot of things dawned on me. And one of them was all this crap about democracy is foolishness. Democracy only goes until the ruling elite feel as though it doesn't work out for them when they feel it doesn't. Does it work out for them? They know democracy, which means if you only have democracy, if the de- ruling elite says you can choose Hillary and you have democracy as long as you choose Hillary. And if you say, well, but, but, but I want Bernie. Well, then you can't have her. In 2020, Obama never denied it. It was re- widely reported he never denied it. It was widely reported that he said, well, you know, we'll let this thing go along. But if it looks like Bernie's going to run away with it, I'll have to step in. How's that democracy? Which don't give me that foolishness about the U.S. supporting democracy around the world when they thwart democracy here, right? So, you know, I have a jaundiced eye, shall we say, talking about the U.S. empire. And I say it ain't a country. It's not a nation. It's an empire. A nation don't need 850 bases around the world. And don't let anybody tell you, like the advertisement, the U.S. Navy, a force for good. You don't need 850 bases around the world for doing good. Did we do good to the uh, uh, Vietnamese? Did we do good for the Libyans or the or the Afghans or the go on and on and on? No, we overthrow countries. We murder their leaders. We steal their stuff i've been saying that on and on and on and so what this is doing is opening the eyes to a of people to a reality that i've been screaming about since i got my show in 2013 here's reality right i look at this and i say okay let me give you an example of what i was talking about why as horrified as i am by this unthinkable genocide i ain't shocked 
Other people are shocked, but those of us who've been following aren't shocked. Let me give you the example of what America does, of, of how this Im- brutal empire does. You might have heard of Manuel, Manuel Noriega. Manuel Noriega was a CIA asset, and he got too big for his britches. And at some point, um, they decided we got to, he, he might talk, he knows too much, he ain't listening no more. Uh, my understanding of the reason they took out Manuel Noriega, this is what I was told by people who know quite well, that basically at that time, the United States had a, what, what, what we could call a dirty war, a clandestine, a CIA undercover war in Nicaragua against the Nicaraguan people, against the Sandinistas, those who are in power today. The Sandinistas are in power, and they have, uh, last I checked, 76% approval rate rating. It, was, it, was, uh, 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 it is um, under the Sandinistas now. Uh, Nicaragua is, is, is rated as the safest country in, South, in, in, in Latin America, and one of the happiest countries in the world. The Sandinistas, 76% approval rating by the government, okay? Well, the Sandinistas, the people were the majority party, and the U.S. didn't like them because it was the Socialist Party, so the U.S. then worked with these far-right-wing marauders and murderers called the Contras, and they were slaughtering. You might remember the 80s if you were around. Every time they're raping nuns, killing priests, terrible things, right? Emmanuel Noriega would not uh, go along with a couple of the things we wanted when it came to Nicaragua, and they decided to take them out. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Operation Just Cause is what it was called. And that was the United States went into Panama to get Manuel Noriega, right, to take the former CIA asset out of Panama and to um, bring him to the United States and imprison him, right? We weren't allowed to talk to him. He wasn't allowed to talk to the media because if he did, he'd have ratted everything out. He was a CIA asset. But one of the things that happened during Operation, quote, Just Cause was the USA bombed these poor areas. If you've ever been to Panama, there's a lot of very bl- bl- black people, black and just like me, blacker than me, many of them, um, black and indigenous people, very po- uh, poor areas. So the United States went into these poor neighborhoods. Now, don't get me wrong. They were not um, military bases. They were just poor neighborhoods. They didn't have anti-aircraft. They didn't have guns. They didn't have nothing. They were just poor neighborhoods. When the United States went in to to Panama to get uh, an operation just cause to get Manuel Noriega, they dropped bombs on these neighborhoods. 2,000 pound, 3,000 pound, 500 pound bombs. Think about this. 1,000 pound bombs dropped on a poor community. No way of defending themselves, no military, just poor neighborhoods. So the United States killed literally thousands. I've heard three num- numbers of 3,000, 5,000, 7,000, whatever. So the United States goes in, and in the course of doing that, they fly over these poor neighborhoods and drop bombs on them, killing thousands of poor men women and children. You might recognize that act because that's what Israel is doing right now in poor neighborhoods in Gaza, dropping bombs on poor people, right? We didn't have social media. We didn't have Telegram. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have the things that we have now because if Americans had known what was going on, it would have been a great scandal. They just hit it. Most people didn't know. The United States flew over the impoverished neighborhoods of Panama dropped 1,500, 2,000 pound bombs on these poor neighborhoods and just slaughtered people. Now, you may say, well, that's crazy. Why would you just drop bombs on poor neighborhoods? Well, let's go over why. When asked why, the U.S. government said those were areas that heavily supported Noriega. Now, think about this. Even then, okay, There's the leader of a country, and you're going to go kidnap him, illegal under international law, and you just arbitrarily fly over the poorest neighborhoods in that country and bomb the crap out of them, and your reasoning is they supported them. So they were condemned to death. Men, women, and children by the thousands were condemned to be torn and ripped apart by United States bombs because they supported Manuel Noriega. That sounds bad, but it's far worse than that. 
Years later, there was an admission by the United States that that ain't why they bombed them. The reason they bombed them was because the U.S. had just come out with a new B-1 bomber. It cost like $500 million each or some crazy number like that back then. Very expensive, right? Reagan, the B-1 bomb, B-1B or whatever. Okay. So the U.S. comes up with these new bombers. The reason they bombed them was to demonstrate the capability of those bombers to the Soviet Union. So the United States decided, hey, we got new bombers. What are we going to do? We need to show the Soviet Union how effective they are. But we don't have a war zone anywhere. We don't have any place that we can do it. What do we have? Well, we're going into Panama. They're a pretty poor country. They don't have a military that can defend themselves. Shall we bomb the military? Shall we bomb an open desert? Which shall we bomb? I got an idea. There's poor neighborhoods with black and brown indigenous people, the descendants of slaves, people who are descendants of colonial oppression, people whose the history of these people is that their ancestors were grabbed in Africa, placed into into chains on a ship, dragged across the Atlantic and enslaved for centuries in South America on sugar plantains, cotton uh, plantations, cotton plantations, etc. They had that centuries of that they had been dealt with. They had had to endure only to meet their ultimate demise at the hands of U.S. bombers. Just so the United States could demonstrate the capability of these bombers. Next on Arts Express, actor Adrian Brody talks masculine identity in crisis and his latest film, touching on male toxicity in this country, Manodrome, in which he portrays a strange cult leader presiding over a sanctuary of men fleeing society's male expectations, whether sexual, social, or economic, including Jesse Eisenberg as a dangerous addition as well as the second disturbing taxi driver Travis Bickle knockoff this year, counting as well Leonardo DiCaprio in Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. And the preceding sexual identity portrayal for Brody, the youngest actor to ever win an Oscar for The Pianist, as sensitive scribe Arthur Miller, husband of Marilyn Monroe, in the testosterone-drenched biopic Blonde. First, some seeds from Manodrome, then Adrian Brody. Why are you here, Ralph? I lost my job. No respect. What do you do with those feelings? You know you could be a part of our family. I know some guys, they like to help out guys like us. What, they're like buddies of yours? My other guys, like they live with you? Just like regular families, except regular folks don't get to choose their family. <laughs> we do. How would that work? Depends on you. Why do we make ourselves so much smaller than we are? Pain. That holds us back. Take back your power, Ralph. Welcome, Ralph, son, man of Trump. But what if I'm just broken? You have to raise an army inside yourself. Maybe you really gotta tell me what's going on here. Watch out for yourself, okay? no God, but Ralph. What you decide will be the only thing there is. <laughs> hello. Hi there, Prairie. Oh. Hi there. Hi, hello, and welcome to... Thank you. You have a lovely name, Prairie. I, I've never heard anyone with your <laughs> name. That's a really okay. lovely name. <laughs> okay, what was it about Manodrome that drew you into this story? 
about toxic masculinity in this country? And how would you say Manodrome is about toxic masculinity as a universal phenomenon, and on the other hand, specific in any way as manifested in U.S. culture? Well, I tell you, when I read the script, was moved to tears. Ah. Um, it was quite beautifully written, but it was more uh, a sadness that I felt for the predicament of not only the protagonist, but all the kind of lost uh, or isolated, um, fractured people uh, that that the film references and 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 that exist in society and 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 um it was just a very hard journey for me uh in 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 reading it and then ultimately the conversations with the filmmaker who i thought did a really wonderful john trenga who's a south african filmmaker and he did a really wonderful film called the wound that also is quite Again, referenced, I'd say, aggressive, toxic masculinity and 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 um, hypocrisy, and um, and it was also very sensitive filmmaking. And I, I just thought this was um, a very relevant and um, complex journey um, to to embark on. And is there anything in your own life that you brought to this character or this story that you've experienced, observed, or identify with personally regarding pressure on males here or toxic masculinity? No, fortunately, I, I you know, I grew up in New York and, and uh, I, you know, we live in a, a wonderful city full of one, you know, immense diversity in every respect. And... Um, you know, I've 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 seen it all. I, I don't. It's funny. You know, I, much of the film references that, or so much of the commentary references um, this ideology. But you know, in, in a way, I feel like it, it's very clearly a condemnation of um, extreme behavior, and um, there's a lot of sadness. Uh, and trauma that um, leads people to feel the need to reject or um, repress their feelings or to um, uh, be very self-destructive in an effort to kind of defend themselves. Uh, and, and, and it's very apparent in the storytelling. And so it was really about me taking... Uh, Lengths to search and properly um, di discover uh, materials that are very available with research um, men's groups in prison and and you know men going their own way and and these various um, ways of of and trying to come to terms with their their feelings and their and rejecting um, past trauma and also societal norms. Now you're coming out in the film The Brutalist about the notorious geologist Laszlo Tuck, who surprised the world when he inexplicably vandalized Michelangelo's Pieta statue with a geologist's hammer, claiming he was Jesus Christ. Do you see any comparisons with Jesse Eisenberg's Ralphie in Manodrome and toxic masculinity at work? Um, sorry, but the, the the research is a little off. It's it's uh, the the brutalist is about a um, an immigrant architect who um, it is not who you you who you're referencing. Oh. So um, it's a completely there's no. Uh, correlation. I'll save oh, you the, the okay. we won't go down the rabbit hole, but there, there is no correlation. And, and that's a, a film uh, that references um, 
hardships of being an immigrant and coming to the United States oh. um, at, at a time that being different was um, um, not working in your favor. I'll put right. it that way. Well, that's what it said on IMDb. Excuse me. <laughs> now, I, okay, I'll look into that. <laughs> And looking at your eminent, prolific career and enormous body of work, when Adrian Brody looks in the mirror, what does he see? Well, that's that's a good one. I, <laughs> I I try not to spend too much time in front of the mirror as I'm getting older each day, but I I um, have a lot to reflect on tremendous gratitude in my life, mm. and every day I. Um, acknowledge that sense of gratitude and um, the creative freedoms that I've been afforded in this world and the, the love that I receive from um, friends and strangers alike and the ability to uh, share a work that I love and commune with people. Um, and it's a, it's a real blessing. And any last word about Manadron? Well, I think it's a remarkable film. I think it's a very ambitious and brave movie. And when we saw it in together with an audience in Berlin at the film festival, I I really enjoyed that experience and sharing it with people. And I hope people get a chance to see it and. Um, I think Jesse Eisenberg's performance is stellar, and, and as is the work of um, the supporting cast and Odessa Young. And um, it was it was it's a heavy film, but I think it's something that um, is uh, intriguing and rewarding. Okay, thank you so much, Adrian Brody, for joining us on the show. Well, my pleasure. Okay, thank bye. Thank you, Prairie. Okay, bye. bye. And Manadrome is out now in release. And now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. The October 7th Hamas massacre and the subsequent Israeli genocidal response has revealed as never before the poverty of U.S. policy with regard to Israel. A recent film documentary called Israelism investigates how young American Jews are indoctrinated to conflate their Jewish identity as synonymous with Zionism and the state of Israel. Here are some clips from the film. Israeli soldiers, they're hot, they're awesome, they're strong. We actually have had quite a few of our former students join the idea. Amazing. I don't think I realized the extent to which what I would come to see on the ground would really shock me and horrify me. When people look at the West Bank today and say, this is an apartheid system, it's not just throwing out a word. Palestinians live in day in, day out without experiencing a day of freedom. History is not going to judge us kindly. I'm happy to be speaking with the directors of the film, Aaron Axelman and Sam Eilertsen. Hi, Aaron. Hey, how you doing? So great to be here, Jack. And hi, Sam. Hi, thank you for having us on. Your film is titled Israelism. Tell us why you chose that title. So the title Israelism really came out of us thinking about the way in which pro-Israel advocacy and support for Israel has in some ways become a key pillar for some people, even the key pillar of Jewish identity in the U.S. and in some ways in the wider diaspora. So, for example, in the film, we interview a Hillel educator, and she says something to the effect of, for me, uh, Israel is Judaism and Judaism is Israel. Some people mm -hmm. can distinguish it, but I can't. And she says something else, which is that she says, for some people, Israel is political, but for me, it's an identity. Like There are political issues, but support for Israel isn't political to me. And that's also a common attitude in the American Jewish community mm -hmm. that supporting Israel is just something you're supposed to do. And in some ways, it's divorced from the reality in the sense that Israel in some ways is not portrayed as a real 
country with real problems. It's almost portrayed as like a a Jewish Disneyland where all of our dreams can come true and not a place that has real politics and real issues and and in fact is is absolutely oppressing a very large number of people. So how did this film come about? Yeah, so we had the idea uh, initially in early 2016. So it was about six and a half years from our first interview to our world premiere. And the film is very roughly based off my own story um, and to a certain extent, Sam's story. I uh, grew up in, in a small Jewish community in rural Maine, actually. And even though my community was not exactly the same, I fell in love with Israel in a very similar way. And I really fell in love with the traditional pro-Israel narrative. Like for many people in the film, Israel became my Jewish identity. Um, but then my senior year of high school, I was just taking an independent study at my you know, random public high school in rural Maine. And I was going to you know, do a documentary on the history of Israel, the history of Zionism, obviously a very pro-Israel, pro-Zionist film. And my teacher, who is neither Jewish uh, or Palestinian, just asked me, you know, do you know anything about Palestinian history? And because, you know, all the books that I've been reading didn't talk about Palestinians at all, literally barely mentioned them, only mentioned them as Arabs or in passing, I said, no, I don't know anything about Palestinian history. So over the course of this year, he gave me all these amazing books by left-wing Israeli historians, um, American Jewish historians, and Palestinian historians, including Rashid Khalidi. And my eyes were really opened, and I realized that the narrative I had fallen in love with was a very one-dimensional narrative and simply erased the Palestinians and only viewed them as an obstacle to the dream of the Zionist movement and not as their own full-fledged people who had their own hopes and dreams and who were essentially minding their own business. The story tracks two young students just out of high school, Simone Zimmerman and another gentleman named Eitan, who are first big supporters of the state of Israel. Talk about the arc of the film. Yeah, we really wanted to like take people on the journey that uh, many young Jewish people go on. So basically, the, the arc is just their story, growing up, being raised to be super pro-Israel without really learning about the Palestinians at all. Simone goes to defend Israel on her college campus at um, UC Berkeley because she's sort of told she needs to be a soldier for Israel. And then Eitan becomes a literal soldier for Israel, joining the Israeli military. Um, But both of them sort of wake up to what they were told about Israel was not the whole truth. Um, Eitan, by sort of witnessing human rights abuses being committed by other soldiers um, in the West Bank and Simone by actually meeting and talking to Palestinians. Um, and both of them sort of find their way into activism. Eventually, Simone actually co-founds the organization, If Not Now, which stages regularly protests uh, outside of Jewish institutions, protesting against uh, those institutions' support for the Israeli government. And you can see in the film, Eitan is really shaken when he talks about his experiences in the army and, and what he witnessed. Totally. A lot of us in our community you know, are told from an early age that the Israeli military, the IDF, is the most moral army in the world. That's a phrase that's thrown out a lot. When I got to college, I would see all these really young, progressive Jewish folks and look on their Facebook pages and see pictures of all these you know, young Jewish kids in the U.S. You know, meeting Israeli soldiers and just fawning over them. Um, and there's this real kind of admiration um, and love Uh, for the Israeli military in a lot of Jewish communities. And joining the Israeli military is seen as a truly incredible thing that you can do. Again, you know, Simone's high school, literally 10% of her high school joins the Israeli military. That's obviously a much higher percent than most Jewish high schools, but it's real. And the Hillel educator in the film openly brags about how many kids she's helped get into the Israeli military. Um, And I have many friends who have joined the Israeli military, but when they actually are deployed to the West Bank, they realize that that kind of you know heroic vision of what service was going to be like is far from the truth, and that they're actually foot soldiers in a occupation that is an apartheid system. And so Aton realizes that he is basically an enforcer in the system of apartheid, which Palestinians have no basic rights, and it shakes him to his core. And again, I've I've known many young American Jews who joined the Israeli military, and are truly horrified at what they realize they've signed up to do. It not only traumatizes them, but they realize that they're also inflicting incredible pain and suffering on a population that has no basic rights. But tell us about the two Palestinian men featured in the film. You know, we interviewed you know seventy or eighty folks for the film, so we interviewed a really large number of people, both American Jews as well as Palestinians, and you know we we decided to really kind of focus in on these two um, really amazing Palestinian activists, Sammy Awad from the Holy Land Trust, as well as Baha Hilo 
I actually met Baha um, when I lived in Israel-Palestine for a while in 2011. He was one of the first people who showed me around Bethlehem and showed me around the West Bank. We did some initial interviews with him and realized that he was you know, a, pre a pretty profound speaker who had a lot of experience talking to internationals and trying to explain the situation to internationals. And then we, we'd been filming with Simone for a while, and she was living in Israel-Palestine for a while. And so we you know, asked her, would you be interested in you know, filming a conversation between you and a Palestinian activist you really admire? And so she mentioned Sammy Awad. So we filmed that initial interview, um, the meeting between Simone and Sammy, and then realized that he was an incredible speaker and, and had really profound empathy for, you know, for, for all sides in this. And so then began filming with him more. So I think both of them do a really, really great job, both talking about the plight of the Palestinians as well as... Um, a really good job explaining the interface between Palestinian activists and the outside world, but especially the interface between Palestinian activists and American Jews in particular. Do you have any contact with either one of them after October 7th? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I've, I've been texting with them both. Both of them, at least for now, are okay. All of them, you know, have loved ones uh, or, or good friends in Gaza. Many of them don't know if they're alive uh, or dead. So it's been, you know, a truly harrowing time, and and the military presence in Bethlehem has gotten totally wild. So I, I've kept in touch with them quite a bit, and luckily they they are safe for now. Well, now since October seventh, there's been a very charged atmosphere where the film itself has become contentious. What happened at Hunter College here in New York City when the film was to be shown? Yeah, so we had a screening um, scheduled at Hunter College. We were sort of in the midst of a screening tour. The day of the Hunter College screening, the president announced that it was being canceled. And we learned basically people on the internet were using a link to automatically send emails to the college administrators. And so college administrators who are showing our film are literally getting thousands of copies of the same email. And, and this email claims that that the film is uh, anti-Semitic and promotes, you know, hatred of Jews and even killing of Jews, which is obviously incredibly offensive, disturbing to us as Jewish filmmakers. The statement that Hunter College put out sort of implicitly compared our film to, to instances of anti-Semitism, including people, you know, drawing swastikas on buildings, which is incredibly offensive um, to us. So, um, but fortunately, uh, maybe Aaron, you, you want to tell the story of what happened after that? Yeah, so you know, so the the film was canceled, and it was pretty interesting because the president mentioned um, publicly right after uh, she canceled it that she actually hadn't watched the film, and that no one who was involved with making the statement had actually watched our film. So it seems like they were influenced purely by the defamatory email campaign against us. Um, but within about twenty four mm. hours, mm. Uh, activists on Hunter College's campus um, got activated and began organizing around our film, which was pretty incredible. And there was a Senate meeting, uh, the Hunter Senate meeting the next day, and they voted to actually reverse the president's decision and demand that the university screen the film. They said that it was an egregious violation of free speech and of their academic department's ability to talk openly. So it was pretty great that they organized around our film and demanded that the university screen the film. So the film is going to be screened. We've had uh, a couple of conversations with the president of Hunter. Um, from what we understand, she's going to be apologizing and saying that our film is not anti-Semitic. We've sent her the film, um, so, so she's going to watch it now, which is great. So it was, you know, it was pretty wild. And at a public university in Ohio, this you know university had gotten twenty thousand emails. And so one of the people from the office came to see the film to see what it was about, and afterwards told our producer that you know this film had a place on their campus. It was a great film. It was obviously not anti-Semitic, and that just shows just kind of how unhinged and how just wild the campaigns are because. Nothing in the campaign actually mentions a single thing that happens in our film. One of the programs that you focus on in the film is the Birthright Program. Tell us about that, how it works. So Birthright is an organization that brings Jews from across the diaspora, both in the U.S. and other countries, to Israel on a free trip, usually about you know 10 days. It is heavily pro-Israel, so a big part of it is propaganda. A big part of it is trying to get young American Jews engaged in pro-Israel activism. And so they bring you on this free trip with other uh, Jews from across the diaspora. Um, there's Israeli soldiers on your trip every time, sometimes only a few. Sometimes you can go on trips where there's more Israeli soldiers. And, you know, you kind of learn the traditional pro-Israel narrative. 
and learned virtually nothing about Palestinians. Palestinians are fully erased from the narratives that they provide. Uh, and again, you know, I went on birthright and I'd known about birthright for a long time. I, I knew it was messed up. I was going because it was a free trip and I could film for my film. It was very disturbing. I mean, they brought us to an illegal Israeli settlement without telling us. And I had to show everybody on the trip on, on Google Maps that we were in the occupied West Bank and we were in an illegal Israeli settlement. It was like a spa on the Dead Sea. And our birthright trip leaders didn't tell us and I had to confront them. And I was like, are you serious? I was like, do you realize that settlements are war crimes? Like we are, we are in a colony right now. And that was actually quoted in the New York Times because we were able to show via pictures from my birthright trip that we were in an illegal settlement. How do you talk to your Jewish friends and family about Israel, especially uh, to a generation who still has memories of World War II? Yeah, very difficult. I think, you know, so many folks in our community uh, are incredibly traumatized because of either, you know, their family's history uh, facing anti-Semitism. Again, so many American Jews have relatives who are in the Holocaust. So I think a lot of what we try to do is meet people where they are, realize and try to show people that we really understand their fears. But also we must actually look at what Israel has actually done. 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from their homes. That happened. That's not anti-Semitic. That's not a conspiracy theory. That that really happened. The occupation is real. I've seen it with my own eyes. Many of my friends have lived their entire lives under a brutal military system, which by birth makes Palestinians into a different legal class than Israelis. So I think really trying to empathize with the very real fears Jewish Americans feel, but also being persistent that you can care about your own safety, but you also must be willing to look the reality in the eyes of what Israel is actually doing to the Palestinian people. Where can we catch Israelism? So we are doing free online screenings every single week, at least one a week. Uh, we've been usually doing them on Mondays. If you go to israelismfilm.com, uh, it'll also be permanently online or on streaming. Well, thanks so much, Erin and Sam. I've been speaking with Erin Axelman and Sam Eilertsen, directors of the film documentary Israelism. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And we'll go out now on Arts Express concerning a pressing topic we cover on the show, the immense economic tragedy of poverty and homelessness under capitalism. Well, now this crisis has hit us personally as one of our crew, filmmaker Brett Gregory at our UK desk, has found himself homeless and ironically, the coincidental title of his film, Nobody Loves You and You Don't Deserve to Exist, A Personal Journey Through Broken Britain. Here's Brett Gregory. And thank you, Jimmy Cliff. Down and Out in Manchester and Salford, written and narrated by Brett Gregory. Day One I first realised I was starting to fall into homelessness on Sunday, October the 8th, 2023, when, standing in the street with a plastic carrier bag in one hand and my phone in the other, I tried ringing Jack, an ex-student of mine in his mid-twenties. Pick up, pick up, pick up. His phone went straight to voicemail, however, and my stomach started playing up. It was also getting cold. All I was wearing was a grey hoodie, some black tracksuit bottoms, and a pair of old blue trainers. I had my grey NHS crutches with me as well, resting against my fat belly. I would have rung Gwyn because he had a car, but he was filming in London until Friday. He was the cinematographer who had shot my debut feature film, Nobody Loves You, and you don't deserve to exist. So I rang Vidad instead, a Bosnian university lecturer and filmmaker who I'd known since the early 2000s, and who, along with Jack and Gwyn, had also served as one of the co-producers on the film. After Nick had died, and then Robbo, I hadn't kept many friends. 
Please pick up. Please pick up. Vadad picked up. I took a deep breath, told him the situation and asked if he could drive over from Stockport. He couldn't. His mother and father-in-law were travelling over to stay with him, his wife and their children, and he was in the middle of preparing their bedroom. I would have to make my own way there. I looked up at the afternoon clouds drifting over me like wraiths and told him not to worry and that I'd book a taxi. In my carrier bag I had a change of underwear, a toothbrush, a toilet roll, wires and chargers for my phone and vape, my passport and my wallet. My wallet had nothing in it except a bank card and an overdraft. I'd been overdrawn for about 32 years now, ever since I started university when I was 20 years old. I'd been raised on a run-down council estate, you see, where everybody just scraped by, and my estranged one-parent family would sell packs of Spanish tobacco at the back door to make ends meet. Even when I was working full-time as a lecturer in film and cultural studies, I still managed to remain overdrawn, and, after 11 years, along with around 100 other staff members, I was made redundant in 2015. I was never going to be rich, and that's why I decided to make the film to make a noise, to make a difference, to make art, even. I'd worked out that it had probably cost me around £56,000 in redundancy pay, loans and credit cards to create this art. Now, in the real world, the production seemed like somebody else's dream. The taxi dropped me off outside Vedad's ground floor apartment and he embraced me on this front lawn telling me that he couldn't believe that I'd been kicked out when I had nowhere else to go. He pointed out my broken knee and crutches and warned that winter was on its way. A green plastic table and four green plastic chairs were also on the front lawn and on the table there were pieces of wood, sawdust and some tools. What looked like a bed frame was leaning against the wall as well. Vadad invited me to sit while he made us both a cup of tea. I asked if I could sit inside, but he said there was no room, that his wife's parents were coming to stay. Everything was disassembled. Everything was a mess. As he disappeared through the door, I felt my stomach churn. What am I going to do? I've got nowhere to go. Nowhere. I tried ringing Jack again, but his phone was still off. I started puffing on my vape like a baby sucking on a dummy and looked over at the out-of-place hedge by the corner of the building. I stared for some time into its dark, thick mesh of branches, leaves and spider's webs. Inside, it felt like I was falling. Vadad placed my cup of tea on the table, and told me that I just needed to keep calm and deal with one thing at a time. I glanced over my shoulder, and a middle-aged woman carrying a blue and white check shopping bag was walking past us along the pavement. She looked back at me and smiled, and I felt uncomfortable and ashamed. Evening was approaching, and the light was starting to fade. I told the dad that I had nowhere to go, and I didn't know what to do. He replied that I shouldn't panic, and then proceeded to recount his time as a teenager in the Bosnian War. In the main, he said that in order to stay alive, he had to look after his mind. This is because if you lost your mind, then you would lose everything. He then lit up a cigarette. I told him that on Friday I was sitting in front of my PC and uploading my review of Nick Broomfield's Rolling Stones documentary for the radio station in New York. Today, however, I was being advised how to stay alive, how to survive the winter and how to survive the streets. This sudden change in circumstances was too much to bear, too dramatic, too drastic and I felt myself growing manic. Vadad told me to calm down. He then said I should consider booking myself into a hostel for a few days until something turned up. I asked if I could sleep on his sofa instead, but he reminded me that there wasn't any room. I then asked if I could sleep in the back seat of his car, and he laughed. He said that if his mother-in-law caught me sleeping in the back of his car, then both of us would be homeless, as she would kick him out onto the streets personally. The front door of the adjacent apartment then opened up and out stumbled a bulky, middle-aged man with an unkempt mohawk and a bottle of lager in his hand. He was wearing cargo shorts, flip-flops and a t-shirt with marvellous Marcus printed across it. Vidad went over to greet him. My phone then rang. I stood up and pulled it out of my pocket. 
it was Jack. He told me that he'd been looking for me after I messaged him on X on Twitter and that he'd been to the apartment in Manchester, but no one was there. His phone battery had then died as he made his way back home to Salford on foot. I told him that Vidad had said that I needed to stay in a hostel for a few days until something turned up. I pointed out that I had no idea what was supposed to turn up, but whatever. Did he have his laptop with him? Obviously he did. And so I asked him to search for a really cheap hostel in Manchester. Jack then sighed and said he would see what he could do. Then he hung up. Suddenly Marcus was standing right next to me with his bottle of lager, telling me that staying in a hostel wasn't a good idea. I felt the skin along my arms prickle. He had a London accent and it also looked like he had high blood pressure. He asked if I had stayed in a hostel before and I replied that I hadn't. He then told me that some proper dodgy people hung around hostels and they'd probably steal everything I had on me. He added that I didn't look like I was in any condition to put up a fight either or was even capable of running away. We both then looked over at my crutches resting against one of the plastic chairs. He went on and said that the dad had told him I was a decent guy and so he had this camp bed folded up in his living room. If I really had nowhere else to stay, I could sleep on it for a few days. My whole body lit up like I'd just been told that I'd be able to walk again. Gratitude gushed out of my mouth. Marcus then told me that he'd been homeless himself back in the day for about four years, that it had been a horrendous experience and he had ended up feeling like a wild animal. He said his family were Irish travellers and, luckily, this upbringing had helped him to survive. He was much younger then though, 25 years old, well-built, healthy. In this weather, someone like me wouldn't stand a chance. I confess that I didn't even have a coat or a jumper. He half smiled and shook his head before stumbling back into his apartment to locate another lager. I immediately rang Jack back. I told him that I didn't need a hostel now because Marcus, the dad's neighbour, had said I could sleep on a camp bed in his living room for a few days. Jack replied that he'd already booked a hostel for me until next Saturday. Surprised, I asked him how much it cost and he said 180 quid. I took a deep breath and told him to cancel it and get his money back, informing him that Marcus had told me that hostels weren't safe and that I'd probably get beaten up and robbed. Jack said fine and hung up again. It was now seven o'clock in the evening and dark. The dad then appeared at his doorway with some bits and bobs in his hands and began passing them to me one by one. Radox shower gel, a bar of soap, a packet of digestive biscuits, an energy bar, he paused and held up the energy bar in its shiny wrapper like it was some kind of precious metal. He said to me that if there was a time when I didn't have any food, then I should eat it in the morning and it would fill me up for the rest of the day. He told me that it was very important that I eat because if I didn't, then I would start to lose my mind. I nodded and took it from him. He then handed me a bottle of aftershave, which was confusing for a moment until he explained that this was because he couldn't find any spare deodorant in his bathroom. He told me he was driving his kids to school in the morning, and he would be back by nine. We could talk after that. I thanked him and told him he was a lifesaver. He said no worries, and then went back indoors to be with his family. I placed everything he'd given me into my carrier bag, picked up my crutches, limped over to Marcus's front door, and tapped on the glass. He shouted, that the door was open. My face hit a wall of warm air laced with the smell of cottage pie as I stepped into a living room that was sort of hippified, postmodern, chaotic. I noticed there were bowls of half-eaten food and glasses half-filled with fruit juice next to a small phallic cactus in a plant pot on the coffee table. A widescreen television was on top of a large wooden chest of drawers surrounded by Disney figurines a carved bust of an African tribesman and a world globe on a stand. And on the walls there was a David Hockney print, a Minecraft poster and a mosaic of family Polaroid photographs. Marcus was in the kitchenette and a ten-year-old boy was sitting in front of the television in his Pokemon pyjamas. Marcus announced that the place might be a mess but he knew exactly where everything was. I replied that all was good 
and thanked him for allowing me to stay. What a strange place. The boy then said hi and told me that his name was Sonny and I replied that my name was Brett. Sonny then told me that he was looking for something to watch before he went to bed. His father overheard and reminded him that his bedtime was at 10 o'clock and he had school in the morning. He then cracked open another bottle of lager and his son rolled his eyes. To quickly change the subject, I told Sonny that I'd actually written and directed a film myself and that it was on Amazon Prime. He seemed interested and asked me what it was called. I told him it was called Nobody Loves You and You Don't Deserve to Exist. I then watched him type in the title with the controller until the film's poster appeared on the screen. I pointed this out to him and he slowly read the tagline out loud. A personal journey through broken Britain. He then went quiet for a moment or two as he pondered. Eventually he looked up at me and asked if I wanted to watch Loki with Tom Hiddleston instead. My stomach sank. I said sure and tried to smile. I then carefully navigated my way around the coffee table with my crutches so as not to knock anything over and sat down in an armchair by the back wall. With my carrier bag at my feet, I soon began to think about tomorrow and imagine what further stress and shame was in store for me. I wondered if I'd be strong enough to cope or if, like the dad had warned, I would start to lose my mind. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Such a trick.